We are in Joshua chapter 2 this week. And last week we did Joshua chapter 1, short chapter that um, basically Joshua gave the marching orders for Israel saying, okay, now we're ready. Tell the camp three days from now we're going to cross the river. We're going to take the, the lands in Canaan. Um, and so it was this prepare for battle scene. We talked about it, the Braveheart scene, right? He's rallying the troops, mustering the troops. And then Joshua 3 picks right up in that action. And they talk the crossing of the Jordan and everything. But in between is Joshua 2. And Joshua 2 is like an interlude. It's like the, the narrator or the director, if this were a movie, says, Meanwhile, you know, like if you watch Dukes of Hazard, Waylon Jennings' voice is like, well, them Duke boys, what they had done, you know, it's like, well, meanwhile, what's going on in Jericho? So it gives you this little cutaway scene that could have happened before Joshua gave those orders or after. There's, there's a lot of dischronologization, which is a fancy way of saying you don't tell a story linearly all the time in the Old Testament. Sometimes it'll tell an account, and then it'll jump back and tell you something that happened a little bit earlier. And we've seen this, if you've been here since Genesis, we've seen this many times. So there's some dischronologization going on in the Rahab story, <clears throat> and that has caused some people to go, oh, this is a later addition to the text. Or it's just really good storytelling. Sometimes scholars just lose their ability to see literary features because they're so intent on finding these different contradictory sources and ferreting everything out. And um, when if you just read the story, it's, it's, it's marvelous the way it happens because there's the prepare to go take the Canaanite land, right? Israel's 400 years. They've been prepping to um, the Canaanites, the sin of the Canaanites. The iniquity has been building, 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 building. And Israel is now going to be God's method of judging the Canaanites finally and driving out their pagan religion and their child sacrifice and their wanton sexuality and all of the stuff that um, characterizes Canaanite fertility culture. And right before that's about to happen, there's this brief intermission, and we meet an amazing woman, one of probably my favorite women characters in the entire Bible is this woman, Rahab, Rahab. And her name, Rahab, comes from a root that means open, and, and in Ugaritic inscriptions, which is a little bit north of um, Canaan at the time, the name is part of names that mean opening of the womb or even opening of the female sexuality. Like, like we would say somebody opened their legs. It's, it's a very explicit name, yeah. And so some scholars, um, Ellen Davis is one of them, who said the name Rahab was even something like of an old soldier's joke uh, because her profession was one of opening herself to people. So it'd be like calling somebody who's a, um, uh, like somebody who, they, I think the example they said was somebody who digs graves and if their name was Digger or something like that, you know, like, and, and a, a better English translation that slightly captures the nuance of Rahab is, would be, um, so the name means wide open or broad. So some broad name Rahab. Like you could, it almost has that connotation. Like it's a very, it's an illicit name. The Babylonian Talmud even says, ancient Jewish tradition says, that the mention of the name Rahab was enough to incite arousal in men. So it's an explicit name. If you have a daughter, may not want to name her Rahab. Uh, <clears throat> but the whole point of it is, yes, it's an explicit name. She is, she is the antithesis of what you would look at when you see Joshua. Right? You see Joshua, Yahushua, Yahweh saves. 
and, and he's upstanding. He's a, he's a he's a Hebrew. Um, you know, he's a man. He's an Israelite. He's part of the covenant people, a, a noble leader. And then his contrast is a Canaan Canaanite pagan woman prostitute. Oh, you're gonna see. She's amazing. She's amazing in this story. <clears throat> so look at chapter 2. And this is the interlude. This is before the battle that's going to take place starting in chapter 3 in Jericho and the walls fall down, all that stuff. <clears throat> and Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now the NIV, which I'm reading from, which is the typical um, evangelical Bible, has obscured a good bit and has sanitized this story a good bit, or at least this uh, made some things, they've glossed some things over that they want to point out. Firstly, where, uh, not, not having to do with translation, but this is from where Shittim, this is where Israel was camped when the Moabite women were used at Balaam's advice to lure the men into sexual immorality which is then when Phineas came and he you know, stabbed the ones in the tent. If you were here for Numbers, you remember that, Numbers 25. So the name Shittim, where Israel's camp had, already has connotations of pagan sexuality and, and, and of, of, of Moabite women. So there's just a hint. This is, this is real, all of this. Nothing is here by accident. Then it says, go look over the land, especially Jericho. <coughs> so they went and entered the house, and it says, of a prostitute named Rahab. And NIV puts a little footnote there that says, or possibly an innkeeper. And they base that on some um, ancient and medieval Jewish tradition, going all the way back to Josephus and some of the Targum, which were the Aramaic translations of this passage, and in Rashi, a medieval commentator, who tried to reason, because Rahab is seen as the hero of the story, by the way, and, and to get around the discomfort of the hero of the story being a Gentile Canaanite prostitute who lies, uh, people have tried to soften a lot. To, 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 well, she wasn't really a prostitute. No, no, no. She was a prostitute. The text says, the house of a woman, a prostitute, Zona. It is the word for prostitute. So there's no reason to try to, well, she was really an innkeeper. If she was an innkeeper, it was a brothel. And she was the mama. Okay, like she was a prostitute. And that is in, that's, that's key to the story. So we don't need to sanitize it. She's a pagan Canaanite prostitute. And it says, um, so they went, they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. That verb is shakav, and slept there. It is the verb for to lie with someone. Now, in Hebrew, the term to lie with means to have sex with, or it could just mean to lie down or sleep. This is the ambiguity of the story. This story is loaded with innuendo and ambiguity from the very beginning. There are scholars who say, yeah, the spies, they did what travelers do. When you go in the ancient Near East to travel, you find the nearest brothel and you unwind. <laughs> and that would have been par for the course in Canaan. That would have been exactly what you would expect. And at this point, we don't know anything about the character of these spies. We know that the last time spies were sent from Israel into the land of Canaan, only two of them were righteous, one being Joshua who sent these spies. So we don't know. And the text doesn't say. It leaves the ambiguity here. They went to a brothel and they lay there. 
And it's almost as if the text is letting the reader fill in the blanks. Yeah, imagine what you will from that. It's uncomfortable to some, or others are, no, no, they just stayed there, they were hiding. Maybe, maybe the text just doesn't say, which is one of the interesting things about this story because it builds the tension. It's like this looming sense of pagan sexuality that's already started when Israel was in Shittim last time, and it's, it's kind of hovering over this whole section. What's going to happen here? Why would the spies go do this? Israel's just getting ready to go into the land, and now is everything going to be in jeopardy? So, <clears throat> verse 2, here's some comedy in the story. Verse 1, Joshua secretly sent spies. Verse 2, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. These are the worst spies in the history of spies. The first thing that's done, they enter and the king hears about it. So whatever spying technique they had picked up in the wilderness these 40 years was awful because they're immediately known. They're terrible spies. So the king of Jericho and king, remember, Melech, king in this context. Canaan did not have a big empire. The king was the kinglet, the little king, the, the head man, the big boss of Jericho. Jericho was one of the city-states of Canaan. You're going to hear about other kings, king of Ai or the king of Hatzor, the king of these different other cities. They were like little fiefdoms. So don't imagine Pharaoh, just the head boss of Jericho and maybe some of the surrounding area. And the king was told, look, some of the spies have come to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Why would he send a message to Rahab? Because where is somebody going to go as soon as they enter a city? Rahab had a reputation. Her house had a reputation of people coming and going. It was a brothel. That's what people did, especially weary travelers. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. This is where the NIV does something that's actually, it, it's, it's correct. They introduced the, what we call in English the pluperfect tense. The text literally says, and the woman took them in and hid them. NIV says, and the woman had taken them in. In other words, it puts what's happening earlier because if the king sends a message, everything that they're about to discuss, the Rahab and the spies, there's not time for that to happen. Well, Hebrew only has two tenses, perfect and imperfect. And so there's a huge leeway in how you translate chronology. And so the NIV rightly here recognizes, yeah, contextually, this would have been an earlier discussion that they had when the spies got there, whenever that was, either earlier that day, maybe the day before. <laughs> this was a conversation that had already taken place. So the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So then, responding to the king's demand, she said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from, which... Typical prostitutes usually don't really ask your business, which is probably why people would want to go visit prostitutes. At dusk, uh, or I didn't know where they came from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, so later that evening, the men left. So they've been looking around. <clears throat> or she has said they left at dusk. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But... She had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. We'll talk about flax in just a minute. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. As soon as the pursuers had gone, the gate was shut. <coughs> so now it's about dusk. It's evening time. So she tells the people, hey, send out the spies that you're hiding. She says, no, they did come, but I don't know where they came from. And 
they left when it was getting dusk. They, you know, they took off. So hurry, and you can go chase them. You can go find them. So she sends them back east, back towards the Jordan, right? Jordan River here, Jericho here. So she sends them that way. <coughs> but in the meantime, they're in the city, and the gate was shut. Now, this is where the tension is built. And the gate's shut. That's it. That's nighttime. They don't open. It's not like a sliding doors in cities. The whole point of city was to be a fortification so that the things that, that, that you feared at night, you were safe from inside the walls. So once the gate was shut, there's no getting in or out that gate. It's heavily guarded. The gate was the center of civic life. All of the judging took place at the gate where legal deeds happened. They happened at the gate in the presence of the elders. So the gate was like the capital, and it was also the defense of the city. When the gate shuts, you're in. So now the spies are at the mercy of this pagan, Gentile, woman, prostitute, hiding on her roof, under the flax, hoping that they can last the night. And so that's where then the text says, uh, yeah, the gate was shut. So that's kind of ominous. Um, now, what's flax? Okay, so flax is used to make rope and cord and linen and clothing. It's, it's like you, you, you separate the fibers and then you weave them together, but you have to lay them. First, you have to soak them to get them malleable and separate, and then you have to lay them to dry. So this is, this is not like something you eat. Like we think flaxseed, and that's actually something that we eat. But this was, this was a product used for making clothing, making linseed oil, all this kind of, this was, this was a little cottage industry. So she had it up on the roof drying. This lets us know Rahab is not just a prostitute, although she was that. She's also got this little cottage industry going on. She's taking care of her family. Some of the flax and some of the cordage is going to be crimson. We're going to see that in a minute. Specifically, the depiction of the ideal wife in Proverbs 31 specifically notes that she works with flax and clothes her family in crimson. Read it. Proverbs 31. Read it. And then she looks after the affairs of her family. Rahab is doing all of these things. And she's a pagan, Gentile, woman, prostitute. But yeah, the next time these things are mentioned are going to be in Proverbs when it's describing the ideal wife that you would want as you're in your family. So it's fascinating. So when you're reading that Proverbs 31, if you know your Torah, you hear hints of Rahab in it as her status was elevated. Now, it doesn't mean she's the woman in that sense, but what it means is she is presented here as not just a typical prostitute. She is taking care of her family. And we're going to see how that plays out in just a minute. <clears throat> so, verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, so at some point during this time, Rahab, she went up on the roof and she said to them, this is the key, this is the heart of the chapter, I know that Yahweh, she uses the name Yahweh, it's capital L-O-R-D in your English Bibles, that's the divine name Yahweh. I know that Yahweh has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. See, Exodus and Numbers for those events. Remember, this is 40 years ago when they came out of Egypt. And uh, Sihon and Og was just recently. So people in Canaan know about Israel. This is not some secret thing where they're just busting on the scene and all of a sudden taking over. No, they have been known about for decades as they camp east of the Jordan River. 
you can look across the Jordan River and see there where they're camping from Canaan. So it's, this is not a secret thing. <clears throat> and Rahab recognized it. And then she says, verse 11, when we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. Here's the key. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, in, is God in heaven above and on earth below. That is a statement of God's sovereignty. That is the core of what He... That's the entire book of Exodus, remember? Those of you who are here for Exodus, God was trying to show Pharaoh that He is God above and God below, not the Egyptian gods. Now we have a Canaanite who's supposed to say Baal is the God above, Asherah is the God below. No, this is a Canaanite Gentile pagan prostitute declaring Torah covenant faith. This is the number one commandment in Torah. This is what God chose the seed of Abraham to do. Take knowledge of God to the nations. All the way back to Genesis 12. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Here we see a part of the nations. And what's shocking is it's coming from the very person in and among the very people who Joshua was sending, God was sending Joshua in rather, to drive out. This is where the story of Rahab takes the nationalistic thrust of Joshua which is going to unfold in the rest of the book. And right at the very beginning says, not so fast. Even in Canaan, even in the cities that are to be devoted to destruction, even there, there are hints and echoes and residual uh, resonances rather of the knowledge of God. And here is one example at the head of the story. So that Jewish interpreters later throughout the centuries would look at this. In the Jerusalem Talmud, they would even mention, had the other cities of Canaan responded the way Rahab responds, they too would have been brought into Israel the way Rahab was. Just like Nineveh, the evil pagan Assyrian city, repented at Jonah's preaching and was spared. So this is one of the things right at the front of the conquest that has to say, pump the brakes on before you start thinking God is just all about Israel and all against Gentiles. Because at the very beginning of all the killing that's going to happen, and it is going to happen, there's this story of a pagan, female, Gentile prostitute who becomes an Israelite. The moment she makes this declaration, she is no longer a Canaanite. And she and her family are no longer part of the Canaanites. They enter into Israel. And they do it the exact same way the mixed multitude who came out of Egypt entered into Israel as well. By remaining in their house while God's judgment happens with a scarlet thing on their window. Just like the lamb's blood on the doorposts of the houses of the mixed multitude and the Israelites in Egypt. So this is the thread, pun intended, that runs from the Exodus, Passover, all the way into Canaan. So she says, after she makes the declaration, verse 12, Now then, Please swear to me by Yahweh that you will show, and Ivy says kindness. That is an incredibly unsuitable translation for the word that is so robust and it's the core of Hebrew theology, which is chesed. And we've seen chesed many, many times before. It means covenant, loyalty, devotion that's unearned, that's unmerited, that is relational, and so it's translated in English in many different ways. Kindness, mercy, loving kindness, steadfast love, love, goodness. None of those, because the reason it's not the NIV's fault, we just don't have an English word for chesed. We don't have a word that 
translates that concept. But she is saying, show the same covenant faithfulness that God shows to Israel, that's chesed, show that to me. This is covenant language. She's entering into the covenant people of God. And so, show, uh, swear to me the word that you will show chesed to my family because I have shown chesed to you. Give me a sure sign, a sign of truth, literally, that you will spare the lives of my father and mother. Oh, now we see she's the head of the household. The, the father's house is typically, the, the father would be the head of the household, but they're either too old or somehow infirmed or whatever. We find out Rahab is actually the one in charge of this household. And her, her whole flax industry on the roof and her prostitution and anything else she may be involved in, for whatever we want to say about that ethically, she is trying to protect and care for her family. And so, <clears throat> give me a sure sign you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. That's salvation. Save us from death. That's what she's crying out for. In verse 14, they say, Our lives for your lives, the men assure her. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So, she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. So city walls, casement walls, were like you'd build an outer wall, and then there'd be a, a, a space, and then another wall would be built. And, and to fortify that, usually like rubble or rocks or dirt would be poured in between, so it was kind of like a fort. But sometimes those in-between sections would be used for things like storage or extremely poor housing where people would kind of eke out a living. And so we see Rahab is not a super wealthy, prosperous woman, because you don't want a house that's in the wall. That's the least defensible position. You want a house that's in the middle of the city. And so she's on the margins of society, literally, and as a prostitute, eking out a living with her flax and caring for her family. <clears throat> and so that's where then, up on the roof, up on the second story, so she lets the people, that's how they get out of the city, because the gates are shut. So if there's a little window, an opening, a slot, in the wall that they're just enough for them to crawl out of and she can let them down one, two stories, however tall the walls were, uh, by this rope. And so, <clears throat> she let them down by the rope through the window for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Now, she had said to them, and here's the, again the dischronologization, because it's not like she's holding the rope telling them this. She had already said this to them. Go to the hills. That's west. So the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return. Then go on your way. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear, <laughs> you made us swear, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, <coughs> if anyone goes outside your house into the street, his blood will be on his own head. We will not be responsible for anyone, as for anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell what we're doing, we're released from this oath you made us swear. So this is the deal, just like Passover. You stay inside, everybody inside that house that's covered with the red scarlet is going to be safe. But if you come out, that's your own. You're taking your life in your own hands. Exactly what God told Israel when they were in Egypt. Agreed, she said. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. Now, this, the, the phrase scarlet cord is different than rope. Rope is chabal, scarlet cord is like this series of three words. It's like thread of cord of scarlet or something like that. <clears throat> and it's, 
not mentioned a lot. Even the color scarlet's not mentioned a lot. Like I said, it's mentioned in Proverbs 31. But also, interesting, this is, the, this is why Scripture's so cool. Interestingly enough, there was another pagan, Gentile, woman, prostitute, all the way back in Genesis. And her name was Tamar. And she, too, saw her family line in distress. If you read the story of Judah and Tamar, those of you that were here first for Genesis. And she acted in a deceitful way, dressed up as a prostitute, slept with her father or her grandfather, or no, her father-in-law, in order to raise up an heir from her line through leveret marriage. Again, totally weird concept to us. Definitely not proper. Um, and yet she, Tamar, was praised for doing it by Judah, and she, along with Rahab, were included in the Gentile of Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. And when she gave birth to her sons from that illicit affair, she tied a scarlet thread around the foot of one, and she gave birth to Perez and to, uh, Perez and to her, the, t the twins. So a scarlet thread, a Gentile prostitute trying to save her family line. This is a recapitulation of something we've already seen in Genesis. It's just an, it, it, you can't build any theology off that. It's just a fascinating connection between these stories of these two women who will then be the two of the only four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. The other one will be Ruth, another pagan Gentile who engages in some illicit or at least improper sexual activity on the threshing floor with Boaz. Whether she did or whether she didn't, the text is at least ambiguous. And then the last one will be Mary, Jesus' mother, who had him out of wedlock, or was pregnant out of wedlock, technically. Four women in Jesus' genealogy all have these shades of societal impropriety. And yet those are the four women, three of whom are Gentile, lifted up and elevated and put in the line of Jesus. That is, that is a... That is an implicit testimony of God's faithfulness and grace, even to those that society deems as the sinners, the outcasts, the wanton women. And you look at Jesus' interaction with women. Who is he the most harsh in his dealings with? The religious leaders. Who is he the most tender? Even in rebuking, who is he the most tender with? Usually women, and specifically women who had some sort of dubious sexual um, reputation. We see that. This is the heart of God throughout Scripture. First woman God ever appears to alone, and she actually names God. The first woman to ever name God was who? Hagar, the Egyptian runaway slave. When she appears, God appears to her and actually talks to her and says, I'm going to take care of you. Go back to your mistress. And she names him the God who sees me. God is a God who sees the outcast. He sees the, the destitute woman, the harlot, the, the ones who society and, and everything proper is set to say, ah, keep away, keep away. And yet God, Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament go out of their way to welcome those who have been so cast away by society and deemed as unfit for God's grace. And so here Rahab then, when they left, they went into the hills, they stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua. Son of Nun told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Yahweh has surely given the whole land into our hands. 
all the people are melting in fear because of us. And that brings us right back to where we left off in chapter 1 with Israel getting ready to go into the land with passion and with conviction and with optimism that God has fought the battle. So you see this Rahab story is positioned perfectly. If this was the work of multiple contradictory authors, man, that even more shows the sovereignty of God. This is a beautifully crafted story right at the front of Joshua. And what it shows us is that on the verge of the, the driving out of the Canaanites, this Canaanite, Paul would say he's a, fair, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, right? Bragging on his credentials. So on the opposite end, Rahab would be a Canaanite of Canaanites. You know, she's a pagan in a patriarchal society. She's a woman. She's having to care for her family and her aging uh, mother and father and her relatives. And she's a prostitute. Most women in the ancient world didn't choose prostitution. Just like today, most people don't go, I'm going to be a prostitute. Usually it happens because of life situations, whether good or bad choices, whether sin is involved, doesn't matter. It usually is not the first option for people, just like it wasn't back then. The world's oldest profession, <laughs> it's called that for a reason, and in a society that's been broken by the fall, where your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you, the one way women were able to, to eke out a living in that culture, often, as it is today around the world, they resorted to prostitution. And that is, that is the person that God says, holds up and says, this is going to be a paragon of the virtue of faith in Israel and in the world. Two times Rahab is praised in the New Testament as an exemplar of faith. Hebrews 11, James chapter 2, both times. So whatever we read about, oh, she's a prostitute, oh, she lied, oh, she, whatever we think about it, God's judgment on it is that is an example of faith and saving faith. Saving faith. At this point, before the time of Jesus, obviously, don't, all you do is cry out to God for salvation and enter into covenant with Him. That is saving faith. That's how Abraham was saved. That's how Isaac, Jacob, all of them, saving faith. That's how Israel, all that came out of Egypt, Gentiles like Caleb. And now we see another Gentile, Rahab, coming to saving faith in the God of Abraham who had called the seed of Abraham to bless all the nations. That's why this is my favorite story in Joshua because it's right there at the beginning and it shows God still, even in this most nationalistic of books, is a missionary God who wants to reach the world all the way down to the pagan Gentile prostitute. And she's the example of faith. So, we got to go. Have a great week. Next week, we're back to the battle scene. They're getting ready. They're going to go and they're going to cross the Jordan and it's going to really pick up. So, come back, bring a friend, and we'll see you then. Take care.